You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Today, I'm excited to continue our Legends of Go-To-Market series with the one and only Jill Rowley. Jill is someone who has lived and breathed the life of startup tech and B2B SaaS. For the past 23 years, she was one of the first 100 employees at Salesforce, number 13 at Eloqua. She's advised HubSpot, was chief marketing evangelist at Marketo. So this is someone who has really left her mark on pretty much every major player in the marketing automation category. And she continues today as a GTM advisor and LP at Stage 2 Capital and most recently has taken on a role in strategy and evangelism at nearbound.com, helping to influence another new wave of B2B go-to-market strategy. So we're going to discuss all that and more today. Jill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm excited to be on a RevOps podcast. Not sure I've actually been on one. So this could be like the beginning of a new trend for me. There's a first time for everything. And I'll say I saw the intro that you got, I think it was at the Nearbound conference. It was like royalty, you know, being announced into the hall. So I cannot hope to compete with that intro. I did do my best. Jill, you've had an incredible career so far, been some amazing places at some amazing times. Maybe we can just start with like early days at Salesforce. And what was that like kind of in the beginning of selling the cloud? Yeah, um, it wasn't called cloud. And it wasn't actually even called SaaS. It wasn't called software as a service. I joined in 2000 and Salesforce was one of the very first companies where the software was delivered via a web browser. The competition was Siebel on-prem and only for enterprise. And it cost a crap ton of money and you paid up front and you hired an army of consultants to implement on servers. And when you wanted to make a change to the software, you had to get all of the salespeople's laptops from outside the field and install the new disk to get them to the latest version. So a very different model. And to me, having never sold on-prem, but hearing the stories, software as a service, We called it ASP application service provider back then. It made unbelievably an incredible amount of sense. And, you know, I was so excited to help shepherd in a more modern way to really deliver software. I was only there for two years. I ended up joining a customer of Salesforce, Eloqua. This is, mind you, 2001, 2002. There was no app exchange that didn't come along until I think like 2007-ish. And because I saw that the need to connect Salesforce automation, which was the only product that Salesforce had back then, with a marketing database, which is what Eloqua was. So I've been in the partnerships world from the beginning of my software sales career. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC. That's K-N-A-K. And get a special offer just for my listeners. Every salesperson has their pitch or their message that they know can kind of land with someone to explain what that thing does. At that point in time, selling against Siebel and on-prem 
Was that really the angle that you took with Salesforce? Like you're not going to have to get all your field people's laptops in to update them every time and that sort of thing. What's interesting about like Mark Benioff pretty much has always been the CMO of Salesforce. And those days there were picketing at Siebel's conference. What's funny because we were selling software at Salesforce, but there were no like software with the circle red line. Yep. No software. It made people think, wait, like no software. And, and we then articulated that it was a service, right? It was software as a service, but it wasn't even called that back then. But it, the, it was like, stop the nonsense with expensive, difficult, complex software that you have to implement rather than web browser point click close was our tagline. And it was just that the E, right? Removing friction and real time visibility. Someone puts a new opportunity into Salesforce and anybody could see it who has access around the world. That was revolutionary back then. Now it's what you expect, but it was absolutely revolutionary back then. I remember reading about that picketing Siebel strategy. It has to be probably the most famous guerrilla marketing campaign, at least in B2B. And then, you know, funny to think that now Salesforce is the huge giant that everybody is going after in the CRM space. And then you, as you mentioned, moved over to Eloqua, which at that time, there wasn't even a category for marketing automation. What did you think that it was? Or how did you conceive of that thing at that time? What I love about... Eloqua from the birth of the company, which Eloqua was founded in 1999, the same year that Salesforce was. A lot of people, when they look back, they didn't even know that Eloqua was software as a service. You know, a lot of people thought it was on-prem software because of the time, the timing of when it hit the market, but it was always SaaS. Eloqua was from day one, the system of record for marketing. The vision day one was to increase conversions from marketing spend to impacting sales. And I mean, gosh, we're still fighting today about sales and marketing alignment. And Eloqua was not designed as, you know, a batch and blast email tool. It was, yes, email, because email wasn't ruined. It was in its infancy. And in fact, companies didn't even have like their first party email list. At that point in time, companies were renting and buying email list. And it was through Eloqua educating the market on content and then progressing to landing pages and forms to capture information and automation to make sure your data was clean and automation to ultimately score and nurture and route more highly qualified leads, opportunities through sales. Marketing automation didn't exist as a category. We really helped build that. Demand generation, like this was the time when marketing B2B was going from brand to demand, from analog to digital, and from no data, no process, no automation, no workflow, no impact on revenue or pipeline. Marketing ops as a function didn't exist. I'm so fortunate in my career to really be at the forefront of really massive transformation in marketing and in sales, in selling, and now more holistically go to market. On your LinkedIn profile, when you have the line for Eloqua, I like your your title that you put there was Eloqueen, and you focus a lot in that description on customer success and how that was part of your job. 
Was it a pure sales role there? Was it kind of sales and implementation? And what was it like bringing some of the first companies to really ever use marketing automation into that world? For the 10 years I was at Eloqua, I was an individual quota carrying sales rep. As the company matured and I became known in the industry as more of an evangelist for B2B marketing and really saying things back then that sounded out of whack in terms of when everyone was questioning marketing's contribution to pipeline and revenue, I was out there saying that marketers needed to be paid more because I believe and still believe even being an individual quota carrying sales rep back then that marketing influences every single dollar of revenue. Literally every dollar of revenue, marketing has some type of influence because marketing owns the website and the positioning and the messaging and the content and so many things in between. And I was campaigning, kind of like that guerrilla marketing from mm-hmm. Salesforce days. That's who I am. I'm, I'm very much someone who will challenge how things are being done. I'm not here to do things the way they are being done, but the way that they're possible, right, and modern. When I would talk to leaders about next year, they have to grow revenue by 30%. Back then, it was like sales leaders own the keys of the kingdom. And sales would say, I need more money to hire more reps to do more outbound, make more calls, send more emails, do more steak dinners. And marketing would say, I need more money to run more campaigns to generate more leads. And I was looking at how do we actually engineer marketing to be more about not leads, but qualified pipeline and how can marketing impact conversion rate and the velocity. And you don't need more salespeople. You actually need to invest more in marketing and not top of the funnel, but life cycle and that you need better enablement, like sales enablement, revenue enablement. You don't need more reps. You need better enabled reps. And that better enablement is a partnership with marketing and sales and ultimately customer success because they're the closest to the customer and they can feed back into your product team, your marketing team, your sales team. You know, no more shitty products, no more false advertising and marketing, no reps closing bad fit deals that aren't in your ICP where they miss that expectation. Because at that point, the customer success can't clean up the mess, right? And understanding even early in my career, the value of partnerships, of a partner ecosystem, of services, organizations, solutions, partners, agencies to help your customers actually do the thing that your software has the capability to do, but the customer doesn't have the internal skill set, experience, resources. And so for me, services and solutions partners have always been in my wheelhouse. And you mentioned service partners, and I spent most of my career so far working in the Marketo service partner ecosystem. So know that space really well. And it made me curious, how early on did you start having those pop up around Eloqua? Was it right from the beginning? Was that an important part of your go-to-market? I tell the story in 2007, an Eloqua customer came to me, Dave Lewis. He was the SVP of marketing at Ellie Mae. Ellie Mae became an Eloqua customer end of 2004, super early. And Dave was the modern marketer, just understood technology, which Eloqua was pretty complex <laughs> and understood the creative side, really understood demand generation, ops, like just, he was like the perfect SVP of marketing, a perfect modern marketer, 
that could really leverage the power of Eloqua. He lived in the Eloqua ecosystem. He came to me and he said, I'm thinking about starting a, an agency, a services company for Eloqua. Would you bring me in on deal? Would you introduce me to your customers? And I said, hell yes. Yes. Because you've been to the place that my future customers are trying to go. You've done the thing that my future customers are trying to do. You know how to instrument, not just the software, but the modern marketing transformation in elevating marketing to its proper position within an organization as a peer to sales. So that was our first services partner. And Dave and I, we closed a lot of deals together. He was my sales engineer. He brought instant credibility. He could tell stories and it earned me trust by bringing him in early and really not selling the software, the feature function, but describing the journey to being a revenue contributor in the organization. What you described just there, your relationship with David was like, that's the perfect vendor partner relationship where it's a real win-win. And I've had those experiences. I would say more common in my experience has been a relationship, I guess, that's more transactional and where there's a real almost power disparity. Like it's great to be in the Adobe ecosystem, but you're like a tiny little fish, like riding alongside a whale and like eating, you know, little bits of plankton that the whale leaves behind. And it can feel that way. And a lot of reps are lacking in certain empathy capabilities, maybe like when they want you, they'll call you, but when they don't, they won't. And so that can be a real challenge. And I think people have been burned by that. It can leave a bad taste in the mouth. What would you say to that? Is this a problem in the way partnerships are done today in some cases? And how do you address it if so? Kind of like the whole things that shock me, the understanding that software as a service is a subscription and you have to deliver value and continue to deliver value and impact on the customer's business. It shocks me still that salespeople don't understand the power of partnerships and that organizations don't understand it either. Many CROs still today, many CEOs, the investment in partners is to get leads, to get revenue, to get source. And without the realization that the influence, the credibility, the trust, the how do we win together? How do we deliver you know, really what customers want, which isn't another piece of software? It still shocks me today that it isn't a no-brainer. Yes, it can get messy. And yes, there are bad actors. And actually, I've seen it where there are bad fit partners, just like there are bad fit customers. 100%. There are bad fit partners. And I've seen partnerships done at the executive level for the wrong reason. One example is a partnership was done to get the partner as a customer to pay you know, $5 million in annual recurring revenue for our software under the guise of this is a great partnership when the overlap in the ideal customer profile wasn't there. And you spend a lot of cycles trying to spin up a co-market, a co-sell, a co-grow, and salespeople burn a lot of calories investing in a partnership that never should have been done. Comp plans, right? Like comp plans drive sales rep behavior. And so there has to be a rethinking of comp plans and thinking more holistically about the ecosystem, the transformation that has to occur in the partnership function is very similar to the transformation that has occurred and continues in marketing. And now in RevTech and RevOps, literally, I can count on my fingers and toes 
how many companies have partner ops feeding into rev ops and partner data, partner ecosystem data, feeding into the rev ops operating model where strategic decisions around go to market are being made. Where are we going to allocate resources? And if your partner ecosystem data isn't even like organized because your partner team is still running on spreadsheets, swapping like customer lists you know, at the bar, exporting Excel spreadsheets and printing them and trading them, then that data, if you have partner ops, which very few companies do, but it's still sitting on an island and oftentimes called channel ops. And it doesn't tie into the operating model where strategy is set and resources are allocated. And so no wonder why the C-suite and boards currently still don't see the impact that partners have on the business. So maybe that's a good opportunity to actually define what we mean by nearbound. Does it just mean going to market with partners? Or is it a more profound transformation than that in terms of how companies think about their GTM? Love the question. And it is more profound and it is more holistic. At the center of it is actually people. And there are people at your partners, right? Like sure, it's a company, but there are people in the company and people have relationships and networks. People live in ecosystems and the nearbound, the term is a play on outbound inbound. And when you create a new category like nearbound, when we hear something, we want to know what is it like? What is it similar to? What do I already know that I can relate it to? And so outbound simply is target and interrupt. Like you've got targets, In your database, you have prospects that you go interrupt through your emails, through your calls, through your LinkedIn notes. Inbound is a pull and attract through your content and your event and so forth, your communities, right? You're pulling people in. Nearbound is a surround strategy. And the idea is that with nearbound, you're living in market with your customers, your future customers, your future advocates, your buyers. You're living in their market. And when you live in the market, you have to do less go to market because you are where your buyers are. Okay, where are your buyers? And the way that you look at the way that I look at everything, I go back. My starting point is the customer. So what I say is, what is the customer's ecosystem, right? Who is nearest to the customer? Who is closest to the customer? And how do you get closer and nearer to the customer by getting closer and nearer to the people and the companies that are nearest to the customer? So what would a practical example of that be, just to make it real? I understand it at a high level, but to make it concrete, perhaps. A practical example would be a Clary, as an example, as a revenue platform. And Clary's customer, the buyer, is the chief revenue officer and the head of RevOps. And so let's put that head of RevOps, that chief revenue officer at the center, and let's ask ourselves, what is the tech stack that that CRO, that that RevOps leader had? What have they already procured? What have they bought? Who are the solutions partners, the consultants, the advisors that that CRO and that RevOps head are working with or have worked with in the past? What are the community that that CRO, that that RevOps leader belongs to and lives in? Who are the analysts that your CRO and your head of RevOps subscribe to? Who are the subject matter experts, the thought leaders that your CRO and that your head of RevOps learn from and trust? And how do you fit in, right? 
where are your connections? Where do you make sense, right, to enhance? So if Clary, their CRO buyer is using HubSpot, then does your product also integrate with HubSpot? And the more dot you can connect, how you fit into your customer's ecosystem, the more relevant and interesting you will be to your desired customer. That helps a lot. So the outbound way of thinking would be like, hey, our target buyer tends to use HubSpot. Let's do an outbound campaign talking about our HubSpot integration, like the outbound mentality on that message. But the nearbound mentality would be more to, hey, let's try to build a relationship with HubSpot and find a complementary way to go to market. So presumably you would be filling a gap that makes HubSpot more sticky, that makes their customer's life better. So they want to bring you in And meanwhile, you're getting access to that person. Is that the nearbound mentality on that problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it starts from the lens of the customer. Is there a better together joint value proposition story? And do we have an overlap in our ideal customer profile? Whether that be, you know, segment, SMB, mid-market enterprise, whether that be buyer persona, whether that be industry, whether that be geography or all of that combined. And like you mentioned, filling in the gap, like the edges of other products and wrapping around that services and solutions. Like in partnerships, there's this expression, this saying that one plus one equals three, right? So you put Clary and HubSpot together, one plus one, but that outcome is three. It's that much better because it's together. Totally believe that. Right. And oftentimes that is the case, but the customer doesn't want three. The customer wants one. The customer doesn't want two. The customer wants one. And so when Clarion HubSpot remove the friction from the customer to understand one, the better together story to two, do the integration to make sure that from a data, from a workflow process, reporting insight, that is better for the customer. A potential criticism of this approach, not saying I believe it, but let's just like explore it and maybe debunk it. But it could be you're taking another step back. So rather than just approaching the customer directly, I have to first go to HubSpot. I have to like my focus now shifts. I have to get in with them. We have to develop a joint value prop. We have to develop a joint go to market and then I can get access to their customers. Is the, to say, well, yes, it takes longer up front, but then it's faster once you get it moving. Is that the rebuttal to that point of view? It is. And that's why you can't partner with everyone. Having 1500 partners, there's different tiers, right? And the tiers are based on the demand in the market. And Like HubSpot, they do have 1,500 app partners. Salesforce has like tens of thousands, I think. And more doesn't equal better. And you can't do joint go-to-market with 1,500 or 15,000. It starts with what is the market saying it needs? And HubSpot is a reveal customer. So Nearbound is the category. Reveal is the B2B SaaS company. And reveal is the software that partner leaders need. Like it is the foundation because it's it's the data. It's the ability to compare partner data. So it's the ability for Clary to share their customer and pipeline and white space data with HubSpot. So you're able to see who are our joint customers already today? Who is already using both of our solutions? Where is the overlap in the ICP by segment, by vertical, by geography, multi-product companies like HubSpot, by Hub, 
It's this rich, like, ecosystem data. You know, this probably sounds like, what the hell is she talking about to a lot of, like, uh, even your listeners? Because this is new. It's kind of like, you know, marketing automation back in 2004 by. And like, you're right. Going back to your point, there's a lot of like thought and analysis that needs to go into your partner's strategy. You don't want to get paralyzed and not actually like do some experiment, right? Like make some back, educated, data-driven back. Oftentimes listening what the customer is asking for, leveraging call recording software to hear how often are your future customers and your existing customers and even recording calls with partners and understanding like what is being mentioned. So your point is very valid. And then once you like start to build this joint value proposition, you know, deeper integration, and then you're like, you're aligning your marketing teams to do nearbound ABM, right? We shouldn't be doing ABM without partners. We shouldn't have case studies that don't actually mention partners, getting your sales teams to get out of the transactional mindset of give me leads and aligning your CS teams from a, you know, we know that when a company has more products integrated with each other, that they are stickier, but the scarcity mindset of, I'm not going to bring in another technology or make my customer aware of another technology because that budget, that spend is going to be, I want to get as much of it or me as possible rather than thinking about what is going to make my customer short and long-term more successful. It's a mindset. And on that point of mindset, and I agree completely with your statement that the value that a partner brings is so much more than just leads. I mean, everybody thinks about the top of the funnel, so that's where your mind goes. But as a Marketo service partner and later Adobe service partner, the value I brought, they didn't need leads from me. They needed me to come in and be the solutions architect or pre-sales engineer to reassure their prospective customer that what the salesperson was talking about could actually be a reality. That's the value you know, that I brought in that role. And the ones that got it were fantastic, but it was very much you know, kind of up to the light bulb going off in the mind of that individual rep sometimes. So that kind of brings into perspective this kind of two different ways potentially of forming a partnership. There's the top down you mentioned where it's like a big strategic corporate alliance could be well-chosen, could be ill-chosen, that has a big impact. Or there's almost this bottom-up organic partnership strategy where a smart individual rep, let's say like you, like David Lewis, you're going to help me exceed my quota. I'm bringing you in because it helps me and it helps you. Do you see both of those strategies or both of them viable? Do you recommend top-down, bottom-up or or is good for different purposes at different times? Surround, right? In this movement, right? Nearbound partner, it is a surround. So if you think about bottom up, top down and all around, I believe that if top down just mandate without bringing in stories, proof point, anecdotes from the boots on the ground, then you've got to get the buy-in, right? And you have to have some like proof points. Right. Like we use me at Eloqua to win more partners, but also educate internally to other salespeople and our CS team that, you know, your number one sales rep in the company has figured out how to win and win more and make customers more successful by working with partners. So it feels like both are needed, but you really, you really, I mean, like any initiative with sales, you really do need the bottom up 
buy-in from the field for it to be successful. Otherwise, you can lead the proverbial horse to water, but making them drink is another story. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like Box is a reveal customer and their partner team, their partner go-to-market team is all in on nearbound sales. And they, even their, their partner newsletter, it says, we're investing in our partner ecosystem and we have a nearbound sales program and it's the three I. And we're going to partner to win and we're going to share intel, right? Everyone thinks it's intros. We're going to share intel, right? We're going to connect our partners with our sales, our respective sales teams and our partner leaders. And we're going to look at the right account and we're going to share intel on that account, right? What else do they have in their tech stack? Who are the naysayers? How long did it take them to buy? What are their strategic objectives as an organization? What are the challenges that they have, et cetera? Now we're going to actually do an influence play. And the partner is going to sort of plant some seed, ask some questions. The partner who has the customer asks some questions about roadmap, where they're looking to go next. Have they considered XYZ? So this influence. And then intro, right? It's great when salespeople, CS people make intros on each other's behalf. That's a huge ask. And an intro requires context, right? I need to know, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? And and so, you know, back to Box, they have reps who are going as far as getting like nearbound tattoos, but, you know, they're wearing the nearbound t-shirt and they're sharing their success stories and that's getting amplified. And marketing is saying, okay, this nearbound sales, nearbound revenue, how can we be part of this nearbound motion. And, you know, Mark Whalen is the CRO and and a buddy of mine. And, you know, I'm I'm like chipping away at him at that executive level while also telling the stories of who's wearing the nearbound t-shirt and why are they wearing it and how it ties to revenue. And so it's this, you know, Mark, this executive level, look, boxes at a billion in ARR, you want to get to two billion, your fastest path to two billion is with your partner ecosystem. Not through, not from, but with. You wanna know who's executing it? Well, Snowflake. So then I share with Mark, the CRO, the interview of the CRO at Snowflake, who basically says, we don't win without partners. And not only are we partnering, but our partners are partnering. And our customers are becoming partners. And it's like, I then, from an exact level, a strategy level, this is this whole surround, right? This is a surround. It's a multi-thread. It's in your four walls. It's outside of your four walls. But it's really hard to get someone's attention these days. Really, really hard. You think outbound email? We use AI to make it a bit more personalized? Come on. Come on. You think more calls or more LinkedIn notes or even more posts? Like more like liking other people's posts to try to get their attention? And it's like the whole people buy from people they know they like, they trust. That's not enough anymore. Hmm. Like people buy from people they know they can get value from. And it's that value that earns the trust. And it's that I trust you when you make an intro that that is going to be worth my time. So you've alluded to partner ops a few times. And I want to turn there because I think it is a fairly foreign concept in a lot of places. Like what is it? 
How is it the same? How is it different? What are the unique concerns that, you know, partner ops has to deal with? Uh, one, you don't exist. It's always a foundational problem in any right. line of work. And part of it is, are there any partner ops community? How many RevOps communities are there? Yeah. A lot. There were none before there were, right? None existed yeah. until they did. And so you've got that like kind of like cold start problem. But I want to leave something of value. And the number one piece of content that your audience, your listeners need to read. It's on Chief Martech blog, which is Scott Brinker. And I can't love Scott any more than I do. He's the Martech landscape diagram. For sure, him. Yeah. And he knows Martech up, down, sideways, all around. And he's now head of platform at HubSpot, turning HubSpot into a true platform partner ecosystem company. And he has an article called Partner Ops, the forgotten ops that's suddenly thriving in the ecosystem era. And what what I say is I don't like, like partner ops can't be the forgotten ops. This article will help define what it is. It's a must read report. Um, RevOps, everybody in RevOps needs to read it. Everybody in partnerships needs to read it. Every CRO needs to read it. And so I'm going to leave you with go get that piece of content and reach out to me, personalized invite to connect on LinkedIn. The generic ones aren't getting accepted anymore. And I'd love to have a deeper conversation. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Jill, such a pleasure to speak with you. This was super interesting. We'll continue the conversation. And yeah, thank you for spending time with me. Yeah. uh, Thank you for allowing me to think out loud because it is the thinking out loud, the talking out loud that even helps me better understand and hopefully communicate the concepts and, and the courage that is required to drive transformation within our organizations and turbocharge uh, go-to-market and elevate us from doing things to being more strategic within our organizations. You know, thinking out loud is the tagline of the podcast and that's exactly what, uh, what I love to do here. So thanks for doing it and we will catch up with you again, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.